Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. What a fantastic welcome. I love coming to Seaford. I feel so at home when I come to Seaford. And it's quite good because the only time I get to come to Seaford is if I'm preaching. So it's a good, a really good incentive to do something that I find a bit scary because it means I get to come and see you guys. So it's, it's great to be here. Um, this series on James has been great, hasn't it? Just going through practical um, things for life. And there's so much in the book of James to talk about. But today what I'm going to be talking about is how to be steadfast during trials. And if there was a subtitle probably to this talk, it would be God's delight in you standing there. So let's just, we'll expand on that a bit more as we go on. But let's just read it together. So if you can turn, if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to James 5, and we're going to be reading verses 7 to 12. It should come up on the screen, so don't worry if not. Okay. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So we're going to be zooming in. There's so much even in that short passage. But we're going to be zooming in to verse 11. So I'll just read that one again. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So steadfastness as a theme kind of takes us right back to the beginning of the book of James, uh, where in chapter 1, we're promised lots of tests and trials. This isn't something we tend to put on the first week of Alpha, is it, mysteriously? You don't tend to get people in the room and go, come with us, we promise you loads of tests and trials of various kinds. We tend to leave that at least maybe for week 10 or something of Alpha, don't we? So in chapter 1, it's in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so James is telling us that all these tests and trials that we face aren't futile they're not pointless they're not for no good reason they're to create something in us aren't they so that we might be lacking in nothing. If we let these trials and tests create steadfastness in us and let that have its full effect, we're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not a pointless exercise. We're actually promised something at the end of it. Steadfastness, really, generally, as an attribute, is usually used to describe God, and it's something God clearly values really highly. It's more often talked about in regard to him than it is to us. But if we let, yeah, so th- but this is a really significant message for James himself to bring. I don't know if you've ever read portions of scripture and thought, you wonder if God inspires certain people to write certain portions of scripture because he knows that they are going to need to have it 
deep within their soul as well. And James is the half-brother of Jesus. You've probably heard that so far in this series. But actually, he goes on to be one of the first Christian martyrs. He's one of the first martyrs of the faith. And ultimately, he, becomes, he gets stoned. And he gets stoned because he steadfastly holds to Jesus. And you almost wonder if God's like foreknowledge, really. He comes that God's foreknowledge is that he's going to need to have that deep in his soul. He's going to need to know steadfastness. So we're told, James is saying, I tell you what, if you want to know more about steadfastness, look at my servant, look at Job, look at the prophets, but particularly look at Job. Be encouraged by the story of Job. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read the book of Job, but there's lots of different ways I would use to describe it. Encouraging, possibly not. I would think it's perplexing, a bit concerning, a bit worrying, certainly a bit confusing. But I don't know if I've ever read Job and thought, gosh, that's encouraging. (laughs) So again, not a character usually featured on the Alpha poster is Job. But he knows something about steadfastness. Because other than Jesus, probably, no one's got a trump card on Job for suffering. Job's been through it all. He loses. If you've not read the book of Job or you've not heard the story, basically pretty much everything bad that can happen happens to Job. He loses all of his children. He loses his house. He loses his livelihood. His skin breaks out in sores, so he loses his health as well. Job seriously goes through it. And all he's left with at the end of it is his wife and some of his friends. And that is not a good thing. Because talk about kicking a guy when he's down. He's then got these really unsympathetic people around him as he has to go through these many various tests and trials like we're promised. But James is pointing us to the book of Job because there's clearly something to learn there about steadfastness for us. So what can we learn? What can we draw from the experience and the story of Job? And why is he the one that's meant to encourage us? Why is he the one that's meant to help us develop in steadfastness? And so there are three things, really, I'd like to just pick out of the story of Job. Why I I think James has pointed us there and why there's things to help us in it. And the first thing would be that when Job, when he hears news that his children are dead, that the houses are gone, his livelihood gone, his livestock's been destroyed, when he hears that news, the first thing I want to pick out from Job is that he grieves. He, is, he falls on his knees. We're told that he tears his clothes and he shaves his head. He is utterly devastated. He's utterly gutted. He's, imagine, I think, I don't know about you, I'm guessing some of you know my husband. And he's pretty dramatic as a person to be married to. And I'm raising, one of my children is increasingly dramatic as well. So I feel like I'm married to someone quite vocal and quite dramatic. And I'm raising someone quite vocal and quite dramatic. And um, I don't know if you ever remember the fireworks safety advert from the 1990s where it says about if, you, if your clothing is to catch fire, you stop, drop, and roll. Do you remember that? We, I think we got taught it at school even. Stop, drop, and roll. That is Andrew's reaction to everyday things in life. <laughs> so if he stubs his toe, you might have even seen him stub his toe because it happens about 10 times a day as well. If he stubs his toe, his, his instant reaction, stop, drop, roll. And to the point that my kids kind of lost that, um, what's that reflex they have as babies? Startle reflex. They lost that quite quickly because I think everything's relative, isn't it? There was this constant, (laughs) constant drama in the house. 
And, uh, yeah, and, and, and my son is definitely following in his footsteps as well. But I have to say, I know it's never got, even in the last few years, even at the lowest points, he's never shaved his head and he's never torn his clothes. But that, my point I'm just bringing out really here about Job, he is not okay with what's just happened. He's not indifferent. He's not unmoved. He's not unemotional about what's just happened. He's completely devastated. And sometimes we can have, when someone's commended, particularly when an Old Testament character is commended in the New Testament, we can have this idea that they are completely perfect, that they walk on water, and uh, that they are instantly okay with and seeing God's plan in and seeing God's purpose in everything that's just happened. And that's just not the case at all. He shaves his head. He tears his clothes. He is not okay with what's happened. He's not stoic and British. Sometimes we can have a reaction, can't we? Maybe this is more historically British. But if some, even if somebody dies, sometimes we can be so quick to rush to hold a Thanksgiving service and a celebration of their life. And nobody wear black. And we're just celebrating. And we can almost have this desperation to move very, very quickly past the grief and the mourning of something. And Job is showing us that steadfastness, bearing in mind he goes on to be commended as steadfast, steadfastness is not emotional, emotionless unmovability. You don't need to be like that. You can be quite an emotional person, actually, and still be a steadfast person. You don't have to be Margaret Thatcher. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, after, the, after the bomb that was planted in the Conservative Party conference, I don't know if any of you saw the BBC footage where Margaret Thatcher comes out and there's debris, a huge fire, absolute devastation, and she looks straight into the camera and says, the conference will go on. And it's, it's, quite, it's worth YouTubing it as a moment, actually. It is quite remarkable. But you don't have to be like that to be steadfast. You can be like Job. He's devastated and he shows it. So much of the Bible is about lament, isn't it? And we can be so quick to skim past those bits and expect ourselves to move straight on to the next bit. It's okay to lament. It's good. It's godly. Okay. So the first thing about Job is he grieves. He is real. If you've experienced loss, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be real. It's okay for it not to all be okay straight away. And the second thing about Job is that he stands and sometimes he sits and sometimes he lies in the dust. This is the bit really that I wanted to focus on about standing in trials and tribulation. Somewhere amidst all of this very real grief that Job is facing, he utters the hard fought for words, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't think those words are easily won in a trial like that. They are hard, they're really hard fought for words. So Job doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't see the whole board. And to be honest, neither do we sometimes looking back. We think, why did he have to go through that? What, what is it about? He, he is struggling to see the purpose of God. He's struggling to sense the presence of God even. In Job 23, it says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backwards, and I don't perceive him. And on the left hand, when he's working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. 
He's struggling to perceive the presence of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. He's, un- he's, he's reaching for it in the dark, and perhaps so are you. In the next bit of that chapter, in the next bit of that chapter, he says, "But he knows the way that I take, and when he's tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips, and I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food." He's clinging to what he knew previously about God to the trial. So his experience of God in this moment is confused. It's perplexing. He, doesn't, he knows he's there, but he's struggling to sense his presence. Uh, he's going back to, what do I know about God from before? What are the words of his mouth? How do I cling to him? How do I treasure that? He knows me. I can't see him right now. I trust he knows me. I trust he can see me. He's standing the God. The other thing just to say about him, though, is that I love, this, I love this point about Job because if you look at his life through the book, he's not seeing mass conversions. If you think that he then goes on to be commended, look at my servant Job. God's saying, look at my servant Job. I'm commending him for his steadfastness. But at the time, as Job's going through it, he's not seeing like mass conversions. He's not, uh, he's not being held up as an example in his own day. He's not Um, winning huge battles for God. He's lying in the dust. He's standing still. He's sitting in the dust. He's lying down. He's blessing the name of the Lord in the middle of confusion and darkness. It doesn't feel like he's winning any huge battles. It doesn't, he's not a guy going out to war. He's like desperately, desperately trying to stand his ground. He's confused and in the middle of his loneliness, And the lack of sympathy of the people around him, he's choosing to bless the name of the Lord. I bless the name of the Lord. I bless the name of the Lord. I thought it was so great in worship, actually. We're saying, adore him, adore him, adore him. And I think that is the beginning. In the middle of a trial, in the middle of a test, it's sometimes through gritted teeth. I'm going to bless the name of the Lord. I'm going to bless the name of the Lord. You worship your way out of prison. Almost, you really do. You are bl- I bless the name of the Lord. I refuse to give ground on the goodness of God. Don't understand it. Don't always see it. I refuse to give my ground. He's standing still, sitting down, lying in the dust, but he's blessing the name of the Lord while a fire extinguisher of suffering basically goes off in his face. So if he's not having these seemingly great victories, he hasn't written a best-selling book on suffering at this point. No one's YouTubing him as a fantastic example. Um, he's, not, he's not got any fame. He's not got any recognition for, for standing strong. Why does it seem like yeah, God delights in him? He actually delights in him and smiles over him and holds him up and says, be like him. And I think like, perhaps we can see an, an example of this later in the way that Paul describes what spiritual battle actually is, what's actually going on. We just put up Ephesians 6, yeah. I think there's some answers in here. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. 
I think sometimes we can see passages like this. We can see the armour of God as equipping us for great crusades, for great mission trips. For this, we're going out, we're going to win people. We're going to go out, we're going to be strong, we're going to win battles. And it is for that. But we've been given a helmet, a shield, a belt, a breastplate and shoes. And none of those things on their own are going to annihilate the enemy. None of those things are actually going to kill the person in front of us, are they? They're not weapons. It's big, they're given to us so that the enemy doesn't get our life and that we stand our ground. And that when the evil day comes, when the day of trouble comes to us, that we withstand and having done everything else to stand, we don't give the ground that we're standing on. And I think sometimes we can be so um, motivated by progress It can all be about the next promotion or the next exam or the next travel plan or what we've done. I don't know if you've ever had that school reunion experience and where you feel like you have to justify your life in 60 seconds. Oh, what have I done? I've got that Christmas Eve. I tend to meet up with my old friends from school and they they all move to London and they're all kind of, I don't know, relatively high flyers, doing interesting things anyway in London. And I go in, I have to work so hard not to be defensive and not to be like, no, I'm at home with two children. And I think it's, we're desperate, aren't we, to justify our lives, to talk about what progress have we made. It's all about how we've moved forwards. But it does seem that he values and delights in something a bit different to that because continually through the New Testament we're told, withstand, stand strong, stand firm, don't give ground. Stand strong. <laughs> he is valuing that. He's saying, will you bless my name? Will you bless my name? Even when it feels like through gritted teeth. When those closest to you, like Job's, um, Job's wife did, said, curse God and die. When those closest to you say that, will you bless my name? Will you stand and withstand in the day of trouble? God delights in it. God is pleased with it. That is a victory. I think sometimes we can feel like that's not a victory, but it's a huge, that is a huge achievement. That is overcoming in its own way, saying, I refuse to give you this ground I'm standing on. And someone who knows a thing or two about standing is the emperor penguin. So in the Antarctic winter, there's blizzards, the most unimaginable blizzard. There are basically months of frozen darkness, and the emperor penguins stand together like this. And they've got an egg, which they're balancing above their feet. And they just stand there for months and months and months through the blizzard, through the frozen darkness. One of the most hostile environments on earth. And the thing is, no one can stand indefinitely. I don't know about you. Like, I'm trying to think. Maybe a hair. Who, who stands the most? Hairdressers stand a lot in a day, don't they? But I'm thinking the emperor penguin surely has got it on any of us standing there. But they know it's going to end. They don't stand and stand. It's not an eternal standing. They know it's going to end. They know the sun is coming. They know the sun is coming. And we are the same. We stand and we withstand because we know the sun is coming. He's coming. The judge is at the door. The king is at the door. He is right there. He's just there. He's coming. He is the restorer, the rescuer of all things is coming. We do stand But actually, we stand in the knowledge that it's not forever. We know that he's coming. We know that our trial doesn't end forever. And for some of us, it might be that the same trial that goes on and on and on. It might be the thorn in the flesh like it was for Paul. 
where you think this thing, this job situation, this wayward child, this whatever it is, this is never going to end. For others of us, we might feel like it's a particular experience at university and you feel like at some point that trial will go and congratulations, a new one will come and there might be at least some variation in your tests and trials. But for all of us, there is a horizon like there is for the emperor penguin. There is a definite, certain horizon when all trials end, all tribulations end because he is at the door And we're told James continually says the coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is at the door. Our whole mindset needs to be that he is coming. The rescuer, the restorer of all things is coming. And for some of us, it might be that we have an amazing intervention from God right now, this week. Everything changes. For some of us, the horizon will be way down the line. But he is coming. It's a certain, certain truth. It's a reality. My dad is coming. And he's delighting in me in the meantime. And he's watching me. And sometimes I think we, um, always in the Western church, we struggle. We miss this whole eternal perspective thing going on, don't we? I think if you um, travel to a part of the world where the church is persecuted and where life actually isn't that much fun at all as a Christian, then you'll find that the worship songs they sing, almost all, based around eternity the verses they cling to be based around eternity and uh, the preachers they are listening to and the way they need to be disciplined in their life is all based around this horizon the horizon is coming the eternal horizon it's beyond the grave hope eternal hope and that's our comfort and at the end of the story of Job we see God reveal himself in amazing power don't we He's been standing at the door the whole time. He speaks out of a thunderstorm. And his power, we're told at the very end of Job, his power restores the fortunes of Job. So twice what he had before, he's surrounded by comfort and sympathy, extraordinary wealth, children, prosperity. How much more, though, do we inherit? What's our eternal inheritance? We reign with him. We reign with him in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the eternity we look to. It's devoid of pain. The trials are over. There's no more tears. There's no more agony. There's no more breakdown. And things like the Grand Canyon that we look at now, and you think the Grand Canyon is pretty impressive as it is. Right now, it's under a curse. So what is it going to look like when the new heavens and a new earth, where everything, all of creation, is released from a curse? You think the Grand Canyon, it looks good now. It's nothing compared to what it will be. Mount Everest, wussy in comparison to what it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything, us, creation, is released into the fullness of life. And we get to explore it all, reign in it all. That's not imaginary. If you're a Christian, that's not imaginary. That's not fairy tales. That's the word of God. That all things are going to be released into the fullness of life. And you're going to reign there with him. That's an eternal reality. But we need to have that deep within our souls, don't we? Because we are so focused on the here and now. But if we can think, actually, that will massively change the perspective of how we deal with our trials, our tests, which are significant and painful and gutting and tragic. But in comparison to eternal glory, that's going to help us fight. That's going to help us stand our ground, knowing he's coming. There's a horizon. Heston Blumenthal's, I think Heston Blumenthal's cooking, that sort of thing, that's going to taste like a bad meal at a little chef in comparison to everything being released for. The Walton's family life, 
You see, look at the Walton's family. I think that's pretty good, isn't it? No, it's going to look positively dysfunctional <laughs> compared to family life in the new heavens and a new earth. That's where the curse gets lifted. That's where every trial ends. We're looking at that horizon. We're like the emperor penguin. They knew the sun was coming. We know the sun is coming. We're certain of it. And uh, I think that helps with those punch-in-the-stomach moments. And I had had an interesting moment a few weeks ago. We went to Andrew's cousin, got married in Dorset. And I'd never been to an outside wedding before. And it was beautiful. And you're on the hillside looking out, just incredible vista. And there was a gazebo. And then all of us were around looking. So it was just a stunning wedding. And the father of the bride walks the bride down the aisle. Beautiful moment. And suddenly, oh, punch in the stomach. I just felt... It's not going to happen. Our, our, our that's not going to happen. Our daughter's got quite severe special needs. And I knew, I knew I'd processed that before, that that probably wouldn't happen. But there was something in that moment, suddenly, oh, loss. We're never going to walk her down the aisle. We're never going to have this day. And it was just that grief suddenly comes back to you, doesn't it? And you, I'm imagining that some of you have punch in the stomach moments. And it's probably not about the same thing. It's probably about something else. Maybe it's about your health. Maybe it's a challenge with singleness when you want to be married. Or maybe it's a challenge within a marriage of it being tricky. And you probably have those punch-in-the-stomach moments where you think, oh, God, the loss. Never going to happen. Really, really tough. And I was sitting and found a quiet space to sit on the edge of this hill later in the, um, it, during the wedding. And just kind of sitting, had a bit of a cry, and just praying. And I just felt God just really like lean into me and just say, she's at our wedding, you're at our wedding. There's a better wedding than this that's coming. And there's a wedding to swallow all the other weddings. And I, at the moment, it feels like loss. But I get to be at a wedding with Anna. I get to be part of it. Because everything that now is temporary is swallowed up in eternal life. And that is a comfort. It doesn't mean it's not painful but it's a comfort and it, lets me, it helps me hold strong because I know everything sad comes untrue. That's my horizon. He's good. He's the restorer of all things. If Job was restored, it's nothing compared to our restoration. Is it? We reign with him. So we bless his name through the confusion. In conclusion, really, we grieve. That's the first thing we learn. So James is pointing us to the how we cope, how do we be steadfast, how do we stand strong and not give ground. And the first thing James is pointing us to through the story of Job is that Job grieves. It's okay to grieve. We, he laments. He experiences the fullness of the loss of what's just happened. He grieves for the loss. And then the second thing is he stands. He stands and he blesses the name of the Lord. And maybe right now for you, that is the challenge that you... It, maybe it's not being out on mission trips. Maybe it's not seeing hundreds of friends saved. Maybe it's not doing anything massively dramatic. Maybe it's being here on a Sunday morning and standing and saying, I'm going to bless your name. I'm going to worship you. This is painful. It's not coming naturally. I'm going to bless your name through it all. There's freedom in that. There's enormous delight of God in that. That's not a small thing. It's not a small achievement. He's watching and delighting as you bless his name in the dust of it all, in the confusion of it all. And the third thing is he is at the door. That's what we see through the experience of Job. He grieves, he stands, and 
God is at the door the whole time. He is at the door. There's a certain horizon. God's going to intervene way before that. We're going to have fantastic moments with God. But ultimately, we all know that the definite horizon, when everything changes, is him. He is at the door. He's not forgotten you. He's watching you. He knows your steps. He knows your way. He's right at the door. And just my kind of final thought that I just wanted to draw out really from it was if you think, ah, I've stumbled. I've had this test and I've failed it. I flunked it. I wasn't steadfast. I didn't do it. I wavered. I stumbled. Maybe you curse God. Maybe you feel like, gosh, this is, I did not pass this test. I had a chance to be steadfast in that trial and I didn't do it. I completely flunked it. I wasn't here. I wasn't blessing the name of the Lord in the hospital bed. If you've wavered and you've stumbled, you're in really good company. Don't be concerned about that. You're in good company. Because one of the most comforting things I find about the prophets and about Job is when they're commended in the New Testament. And you start, and actually when you look back at the story that they're being commended for, you think, hmm, well that's interesting. Abraham is a classic one. Say, Abraham, who did not waver in unbelief according to the promises of God. And you feel like you're reading it, you're going, well, was Hagar and Ishmael about them? Because actually, if I seem to remember, Abraham actually slept with his servant in order to get a son because he wanted to rush the promise. How, surely that counts as wavering. And Job, I think even looking through, it might even be worth you doing this later, looking through the book of Job, he doesn't walk on water. He doesn't, he doesn't curse God, but he comes pretty close sometimes. He's not perfect. And what I love about God is that he seems to have an angle on our story that bends towards our successes rather than our failures. Isn't it interesting that in, when he goes to speak about Abraham in the New Testament, that he's commended because of his faithfulness and not wavering in unbelief? It's almost as if God goes, I was waiting for it. That's what I'm looking for. If you've stumbled and you think, I've flunked this, I've failed this test, God is merciful and faithful and quick to forgive. And he will help you. He will help you to stand again. Get back on your feet. Stand for me again. And he has an angle on the story that is bent towards your success. He is rooting for you. He's not against you. He's not opposed to you, thinking, go on, go on. You, can tri- you trip up there, you trip up there. He's not. He's got an angle on the story that w- is desperate for you to succeed. He gives his spirit as well to help you do that. He is, he is for us, not against us. And we stand not in our own strength. We stand in his strength. And he delights in you today. If you're here this morning and you think, oh, I don't know if I wanted to be here. I don't know if I've got the strength for this. If you stand, worship him. Worship your way out of prison. I love that story in Acts where Paul is worshipping and the chains fall off him. And there's something to be said for that. I bless your name. I'm confused. I don't get it. I don't see the whole board. I don't understand why you've let this happen. I'm blessing your name. You're bigger than me. I'm blessing your name. You're worthy of praise. Should we stand together? We're just going to take a moment, though, just, just as they begin to play. We're just going to take a moment to pray before we sing. We're going to respond in worship. Lord God, you see us. You are the Lord who sees us. God, and you know that for each person in this room, it's a different trial or it's a different test. And you know exactly what they need. And you're our provider. So God, I pray, provider God, would you come and provide? 
according to what is needed. Lord God, we wait on you. We need you. We depend on you. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father. Lord, we need you. We can't do this on our own. Lord, we choose to bless your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We bless your name. God, give us strength to stand. Give us strength to withstand, whether it's family conflict, whether it's health, whether it's kids, financial worries. God, give us strength to stand. We bless your name. We choose to bless your name. Thank you, Father. We love you. We adore you. And today we choose to worship you through the confusion, through the frozen darkness. We know your son is coming.